Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Ricker. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon, Peter. Now, Paul, this is The Power Show. Today, we've got Pauline Hansen. She's become a, a power that no one expected way back in, was it the 1996 election I think it was 1996 up? when she uh, first stood as a, she originally was nominated by the Liberal Libs, Party. Yeah. And then I think the story went, Peter, was she was disendorsed. Correct. For, I can't for, remember the reason. Oh, for having views that were looking yeah, a but, little bit racist, was, I think. She was already on the ballot. Yeah. And so she, this was, she got disendorsed after yeah. she was nominated. Yeah. And they couldn't take her off the ticket, uh, and she went on and got elected. And she got fantastic publicity for it. Yeah. And, and all, she all probably the, only got elected because she got disendorsed. That's right. that was the whole and reason. all the people in her, her electorate were kind of thinking just like her, but which surprised the Liberal Party. Because, And by the way, this is not a Liberal Party seat. This no, is a, it, was, it was a very uh, traditional uh, Labor seat. Labor seat and, um, but I think Bill Hayden was the, the Something guy. like yeah. that. And yeah. Pauline had some views that uh, resonated uh, around... Um, the you know, farmers and miners and people like yeah, that. Yeah, uh, people from, I guess, more from traditional working Mount Isa, wasn't it? Mount Isa? No, it was. Uh, no, uh, area, wasn't it? it was around Ipswich Way somewhere. Oh, okay. um, I look, don't. I can think of the seat, but I just don't know. Oh, it's, it's Oxley. The seat yeah, Oxley. Oxley. It's, 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 All right, we'll look it up later. Well, 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 I know well I'm right. So. Yeah, okay, you're usually right in this sort of thing. All right, now, the next guest, of course. So, how does the power there with Paul well, well, Hansen relate to our well, next guest? Well, our next guest is, is the power in, uh, in medicine in this country, Dr. Ross Walker. He's got his own radio program right across he the does, Macquarie Network. He does two hours on a Sunday night across the whole Macquarie Network across Australia. Of, exactly uh, right. Uh, I guess health and other information. So it yeah. it peaked demand at the moment. Yeah, the, exactly right. Uh, and I think the coronavirus is a is a power force in its own right. And Ross is going to actually tell us about you know what what the symptoms, uh, you know how worried should we be, and maybe when we can get back to normal. I'm really interested to see what his view is. When can we get back to going to restaurants and maybe even going to work in a restricted kind of way? Stock market would like to hear that as well, Ross. Um, Paul, sorry, Paul. And then uh, we're talking to um, Phil Riven after that. Now, Phil Riven was the founder of Ibis World, one of the best industry researchers in the world, Paul. Not just Australia, the world. And he'll, he'll explain it to you. But more importantly, he put me on to the fact that our Australian stock markets rebound by 30 to 80% after a bear market. And guess what? We've been in the bear market, so it's the right time to talk to Phil Riven. And quickly, we'll talk to um, uh, Grant Arnott, the MD of Power Retail, looking at some of the best online brands. That's the show. And that's your connection with a the theme of power. This is power. the Power Switzer Show. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't, Alliteration doesn't quite work there, no, because there ain't none. <laughs> that's right. Good point. Okay. That's enough from you, Rickard. Let's go to our first guest, and that is the redoubtable and uh, unforgettable Pauline Hansen. Thanks for coming on the program. My pleasure. Thank you, Peter and Paul. Now, Paul, I've got to say this before we start asking you about your idea for an Advanced Australia Fund. I've got to say that you know your arrival on the political scene is something I can never forget. And so I'm going to take you back in time when a little-known member of the Liberal Party 
was kicked out. Uh, was it the Mount Isa branch that we're, we're talking about? Um, and, I, uh, and I was the business reporter on Insight and um, some of the, the, the lefty colleagues on the program said, well, we're not going to deal with a woman like this. You know, she's got, you know, extreme right-wing views and whatever. And, and myself and the producer, Jeff Powell, said, well, this is a, a relevant political issue. So we had a big fight and we won. We covered the story and, <laughs> and you've become totally well, unforgettable. Funny. <laughs> That's quite funny, isn't it? And um, I never gave up on what I believed in, and people kept calling me a serial candidate, but mm. I felt that I had something to offer, knowing that I was really concerned about where the country was headed. Mm. And um, so anyway, yeah, so my being on the, well, being in politics, um, I think I've been able to bring some common sense to it and, and give the people a voice. Yeah. Are you surprised that, a, that you won the election without being a member of the Liberal Party, and B, that over time, a lot of Australians seem to agree with, you know, what, what was once perceived as being extreme right-wing views. Well, that's quite interesting. If I had just been a member of the Liberal Party without having the profile that I've got, because honestly, you know, I was just this, this little woman from behind the counter of my fish and chip shop that's standing for politics. And um, I wrote a letter to the newspaper just saying, hey, come on, equality for all Australians. And they took offence to that calling it racism. And hence, 16 days outside the election, it came from John Howard that I had to be disendorsed. I stood my ground and said, no, I'm going to stand for this election. I'm not going to walk away, which I did. And to my surprise, the Australian public got behind me. A lot of support. Now, mind you, the seat of Oxley which they never thought they'd win anyway, was the safest Labor seat in Queensland, the only seat that Labor held when they overthrew Gough Whitlam mm. in the mid-70s. So, And Bill Hayden held the seat for 27 years. So that will tell you how strong a, a Labor seat it was. But I won the seat with the biggest swing in the nation, about 22% swing. So hence, uh, that was my start of my political career. Mm. So, Pauline, let's uh, let's move a couple of decades forward to the present. I know we do want to get to the Advance Australia Fund, but just talking about uh, the way the government is responding to the uh, the virus, uh, how do you think Scott Morrison and his team are handling this so far? Look, I think they're handling it pretty good so far, considering if you look at the number of deaths that are happening in other countries around the world, um, we're faring very well. Um he has to prop up the economy. A lot of people lost their jobs. Some things I think it's a little bit over the top. But then again, I'm not talking to the professionals. I'm not talking to the, um, you know, the professors and the scientists and have direct contact with them. So we have to have faith in our Prime Minister. He has to be the leader for the nation and make the right decisions for us. How long do you reckon we're going to be in this sort of lockdown situation where workers can't go to work, social distancing is being imposed upon us. What's your best guess of how long this will last for? It will last as long as um, it takes for us to find a vaccine. They will not allow people to go back to work, even if the deaths were to reduce um, the number of cases reported because there's still a lot of people out there that wouldn't be reporting that they have the, the virus or possibly people that don't even know they have the virus. So for safety's sake, they will actually wait till a vaccine is, is 
implemented that we have found vaccine for this. Then those people that only have the vaccine will be able to venture out and have um, and start work again, is my prediction. And uh, they will be very cautious because they thought they had the Spanish flu beat, but it didn't. came back the second time with more vengeance. So they'll be very cautious of how they handle this. Oh, gee, I hope you're wrong, Pauline, because it sounds like you're describing something like an episode from the Twilight Zone. Yes. <laughs> well, no one expected this to happen throughout the world, did they? No. So it's, um, he has to be very cautious how he handles this. And that's why he's propping up the economy, which he needs to. And he's told us already, I expect this to be locked down for six months. And so does um, Gladys, um, uh, Gladys Berejiklian. She said exactly the same. So I don't think they're going to find an end to this in, in the near future. I think it'll even take to the end of the year or next year. Well, I hope it's early in that, uh, Pauline. But one of the things you've been talking about is uh, particularly about in, more to do with the recovery is the Advance Australia Fund. And that's a, a fund I think you want to see established to uh, invest in major infrastructure projects. What's your thinking there? Look, we know for sure that with lack of water in Australia, water has uh, gives us the ability to move forward with agriculture, growing our food, even communities, they rely on the water. The drought has affected a lot of these rural and regional towns and businesses are shutting down, as is the farming sector. A lot of the farmers are walking away from the land telling their children there's no future on the land for you. Basically, a lot of it is because they haven't got the water. Because of increased population over the years, and we're bringing in an average of one Canberra city a year. Now, they've run the, the immigration and yet they haven't put in the infrastructure for water. So that's very important for us to move forward as a nation. Also with electricity, we need to provide our electrical needs and at a cheap, reasonable cost to not only businesses, industries, manufacturing, but also for the household. This is what's shutting down a lot of businesses throughout the country. They can't afford it and therefore going overseas. The escalating costs, government costs. Also, with the gas, we've got huge supplies of gas up the northwest shelf of uh, Western Australia. Yet, we, we haven't looked at building a pipeline <clears throat> to put to bring the gas over to the east coast. And I've talking, to, I have spoken to um, Andrew Forrest about it, who's very keen to actually do do the project, but it will cost billions of dollars to do it. So we need to have that gas supply, and we need to stop selling our gas. To overseas nations. Have you? Has anyone actually tried to cost it, Paulo? Um, cost it? Yeah, the, the pipeline. The, the, yeah, the pipeline is about four billion dollars to build the pipeline. Um, to build the Bradfield scheme, uh, the hybrid Bradfield scheme, which we need to divert the water from North Queensland inland, flow it down through the centre of Queensland, then bring it down into the Murray Darling. And uh, that needs, that's about 15 to $20 billion. And that's also being supported by SMEC, which is Snowy Mountain Engineering Corporation, that they, they have uh, done a feasibility study on it, which is, uh, that was 2018. But they have suggested foreign investors, and I'm saying all this should be done by the government, owned by the people of Australia, never to be privatised. Do you reckon the super funds could throw some money at it as well? Of course, the super funds will because these are projects that will see us into the future, especially with water security in Australia. 
Um, we've seen Israel do it. They've built water and um, taken water inland, so it can be done. We've seen them do it over in California, so with the the desert over there, and the, the, the food that they grow there is unbelievable. With an ever-increasing population throughout the world, there will be a food shortage, so we know that. I know Australia produces more food than it can you know, um, consume itself at the moment, but we've got to be reliant. I think, if anything, this, this pandemic that we're facing at the moment has actually told us a lesson, taught us a lesson, which I've been advocating for many years, that we are not self-reliant on many um, items that we require. And we've seen the closure of many of our industries and manufacturing. Like, we don't make ball bearings in Australia anymore. We don't, you know, we, that's required for machinery. We don't make cars anymore. We don't make washing machines anymore. We don't make, you know, um, shoes, um, our footwear and clothing. That's all gone overseas. So we used to have all this industries and manufacturing with, which gave people jobs, people who weren't academically minded to go on to get university degrees. And so we need that diversity in our workforce. Well, look, I think uh, the, the crisis certainly showed us some, some vulnerabilities in our economy. But just coming back to how that uh, gets paid for, because uh, I'm always uh, a little confused when you talk about foreign investment. And I, I go back to... Since the first fleet arrived in 1788, Australia has been very dependent on foreign investment. To and Paul's been around since 1788 as well, to, Paul. To fund all these projects. <laughs> so where, where do you see foreign investment fitting into all these uh, uh, sort of ideas and, and plans you have? I've always maintained your essential services, your gas, water, electricity and telecommunications should always be in the hands of government for the people. Foreign investors only take up or buy an industry or manufacturing or company purely to make profits. A lot of those profits go overseas because they're connected with what's called a 1953 double taxation agreement. So they structure their companies in other countries that pay very low um, or tax havens. So they don't pay the taxes here. And I haven't got figures at the moment, but Paul Chin put in his book, Among the Barbarians, that Australian companies were bringing in $19 billion a year from taxes. That's why Australian companies in other countries around the world where we have this agreement with. Yet foreign companies were taking out $39 billion a year. Now, that was in about 1996-97. Can you imagine what it is now? So we're losing a lot of money from the multinationals. It's somewhere around about, we might have about 160 billion turnover from multinationals in Australia a year. And the government keeps saying we'll get them to pay their tax. Do you know that last year they only get recovered about an extra 125 million? And yet we have Virgin Airlines in a series of about, from about 2013 to 2018 over those tax years. They had a turnover over $23 billion. This is mainly multinational owned, foreign owned, and they didn't pay any tax in Australia. So this is what I've been on about since 1996, and it was in my main speech then about multinationals paying their taxes. So it's no point having your foreign investors here if they don't pay their taxes. You cannot keep taxing the ordinary Australian to the hilt with the highest taxes in the world that we have and expect our debt to be paid back. So so you're not against foreign investors per se, but you want them to pay their taxes. Is that really the...? They have to pay their taxes, but I, but I still say, 
You cannot allow them to own our, our land, agricultural land. You can't allow them to grow the food and export it straight back from paddock to plate to their own to their own countries. We've actually got to ensure that we're actually utilising what we have, our own resources here. You shouldn't be selling... See, under the Lima Declaration that was in 1976 on Peru, that was basically for for first world countries to forego our industries and manufacturing to third world countries and buy back the finished product. It was basically to take them out of poverty, which has happened in a lot of cases. But what we've done is we've destroyed our own economy. We're buying back, usually most of the time, cheap rubbish from these other countries that is a throwaway society, whereas we had an Australian product that used to last us for years. We can't compete with paying um, with other countries who are only paying a few dollars a day in wages and expect us to maintain our standard of living way of life here because Australian companies can't compete with these cheap imports and that's why they're leaving our shores. So we've got to be smart about this, how we how we actually do it. And I believe in, you know, this free trade is never free trade. Someone's got to be the loser at the end of it. And that's why I've always said tariffs have to be back on these uh, these uh, products that come to Australia if we want to maintain and protect our own industry here and jobs in Australia. Now, one last thing, uh, Pauling, because I'm not, I'm not really used to you being controversial. You've, you've seemed to have mellowed as the years have gone by, but I noticed in your Australian, um, your Advanced Australia Fund, that you talked about the Chinese virus. So are you, are you on a unity ticket with Donald Trump when it comes to the coronavirus being a Chinese virus. And, but more importantly, do you want to punish China for inflicting us with this virus? Well, yes, on the whole lot, mm. because it is a Chinese virus. You know, we've, um, you know, the Ross River fever, North Queensland, do you think they actually want to be known for the Ross River fever? Because that's where it actually started up there. Of course it is. Take responsibility. It was in China. They actually shut it down. They didn't want the world to know about it for actually a couple of months before they actually informed um, that they had this, this virus and it was being spread throughout the world. You know, China hasn't taken that responsibility at all. And uh, I think they should do. This has had a huge impact throughout the world. On every country's economy, deaths have been lost. And uh, if China thinks they're going to pick up the pieces. But uh, but I, what I'm hearing is this is going to be a awakening call for many countries around the world who've become so reliant on China. And I was listening to a British MP of the House of Lords, and he was saying, we've become so reliant on China, he said, even all the batteries... He said, we actually now are importing all the batteries, even into electric cars. And he said, they've set up the components that that car cannot work without their battery. So we are going to be so hamstrung by the product that we buy out of China, we will not be able to move or do anything. It's about time we broke the shackles of China, started up being self-reliant and don't give them because they want to be the world leader. Mm. And they want to take over the world with their product. And if we're going to be this way, we're stupid enough if we don't make this, uh, take this opportunity to, to take the tough stance and start um, looking after ourselves because they've moved around the world with their belt and road. They've imposed themselves on smaller nations to actually put them in debt to them. And as my, my attitude is with Papua New Guinea, who thinks they're going to do a deal with, with um, China, 
If you want to do a deal with China, no more foreign aid. We actually step away from these countries. Well, Pauline, I look forward to the battle, Pauline Hansen versus China. It should be one of your great, <laughs> your great battles. Thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. Take care. And that was Pauline Hansen. She's always controversial, Paul, isn't she? She is. Uh, look, um, I don't agree with, with many things she says, but I do enjoy listening to her. Yeah. Well, I, I've always said she represents a fairly significant percentage of the Australian population, and because we live in a democracy... They're, they're entitled to express their point of view. Anyway, it's time for a word from our sponsor. And, of course, the sponsor for The Switzer Show is The Switzer Organisation. Now, this week we're going to talk about uh, a fantastic book, Peter, that mm. happens to be written by one great and the true P. Switzer called... <laughs> and I wrote it all by myself as well, Paul. You wrote it all by yourself, but we've actually got a, 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 a an Easter special. Is that right? Yeah, Easter special, apparently. And it's $17.47. Who comes up with a price like seventeen dollars forty seven? There's, there's something magic in having seven. It's some sort of but, but it's not it's not the Chinese eight, but uh, the seven number apparently goes well. But it's normally twenty four ninety nine, thirty percent off. We haven't talked about what the book is called. It's called Join the Rich Club. Like what club would you want to join the poor club? The rich well, club. I, I actually like that line, Peter, because I mean I know that the. the Suggestion of being rich. I don't know when we thought about the word. Mm. It does sort of put a few people off. But yeah. you know, do people want to be poor? And the answer is no. No. I think they want to be comfortably well off. But look, yeah. whether that's rich or comfortably well off, we're splitting hairs a little bit. Yeah. This will help but make imagine, sure imagine that you're not in the poor club. That's so right. it's the anti-poor club book. Join the anti-poor club. Yeah, that's right. it, could, yeah. it could be that. But imagine if I said, "That's a bit of time." How do we call it? Join the this, the kind of comfortable club. That's not going to work, you know. Uh, in fact, I actually surveyed all the young people in our organisation mm -hmm. and they loved it. You know, young people like the idea of being rich. They're like Sophie Tucker. You've got a choice between being rich and poor. Choose rich every time. Anyway, the bottom line is apparently people like the book. It's going to be $17.47 plus postage and handling. And, and where do I get this from, Paul? You get it from Switzer Store, all one word, yeah. switzerstore.com. And by the way, if you've resisted buying it for some inexplicable reason, buy it for someone who you really care about. And I'll tell you what, there's a very good chance they'll love you back. Our next guest is covering the topic that everybody is talking about and everybody seems to be an expert on nowadays, and that is the coronavirus. Dr. Ross Walker, thanks for joining us. Peter, like Paul. All right, so Ross, I'm sure you're hearing a lot of stuff about the coronavirus. Are you finding that people with absolutely no knowledge at all are even lecturing you on it? No, no one's lecturing me on it, but I'm finding that there are many people who are, who are, shall we say, still scaremongering what's going on with this. And let's put this in some perspective, okay? We had a so-called health expert say a few weeks ago, we're going to have. 15 million cases in Australia, a country of 25 million people, and 150,000 deaths. Mm. This is what this virus is going to do. Well, let me just give you the figures, the cases from the last week. We've gone from 303 last Wednesday, 272, 226, 190, 141, 107 yesterday, and so far today, 95, with 45 deaths in 10 weeks. Now, influenza killed 900 people in four months last year, and we have a vaccine for that one. This one we don't have a vaccine for. It's caused 45 deaths, of which 
six of the deaths have been in the one nursing home in Macquarie Park in Sydney, mm. and 12 of the deaths have been from the Ruby Princess, that floating Petri dish that uh, where, where people go onto these cruises and they're sharing the same air conditioning, a lot of common, common areas where they put their hands, and we're wondering why these people get sick. So I, I just, I'm not saying the coronavirus is nothing to worry about. In 80% of cases, it's certainly just a mild respiratory illness. In 20% of cases, people do get sicker if they are sicker, older people, or they have a known immunity problem, or, and here's the big issue that no one's talking about, is the viral load. This is why health workers cop it, because if you're working in an intensive care unit with five or six people with COVID-19, there's a huge dose of virus going into the atmosphere, which you're picking up unless you have really strong protective gear. Mask isn't going to help in that situation. And that's why we see some health workers dying. 50 doctors died in Italy related to COVID-19. So we must put it in perspective. Yes, it can be a serious condition for some people, but for most of us, it's not. Now, Boris uh, Johnson, the uh, British Prime Minister going into intensive care, that's uh, probably sh- shaken a few people, Ross. How do you uh, yep. how do you re- react to that? Well, there's there's two ways you can look at this. One, he is genuinely very ill, and he he may have serious complications from this. Or two, it's just an enormous precaution because he is the prime minister. But you also got to look at it like this: he's still been trying to run the country from his sickbed. Now, I think that's craziness. When you get this illness, one of the best treatments for any virus illness is unbelievable rest. Now, he's not resting. He's been trying to run the country when he's sick. So it doesn't really surprise me that he's had something like this. But but again, it could be just a precaution, but we don't know. And let's hope for his sake and, and for Britain's sake at this stage that he, that he does recover very well. Well, when I, I heard that news this morning, I thought to myself, and you, know, you try to work out why someone who looks reasonably young, I guess he's in his 50s, but he could, he could be, for example, a very big smoker. We wouldn't know whether he is or not. A yep. smoker's... Um, um, in danger from uh, the, the, the coronavirus? Oh, absolutely. And, and can I say, this is one of the reasons we're seeing such a bad death rate in places like Italy and not so much New York because there's not heavy smoking right there, but Italy, Spain, France, Wuhan, mm. huge amount of smokers, 360 million smokers in China, for example, and also they're living on top of each other. As I said, they're in these huge petri dishes called high-rise apartments. And, and in New York, in any one day in New York, there are 25 million people in Manhattan, probably not at the moment, mm. but 25 million people in Manhattan coming into work or tourists. So there's a huge amount of people in a small area where they're really concentrated. Now, smoking... I mean, anyone who smokes is nuts anyhow. It's really good for my business. I get to see a whole lot of people for a very short period of time because I don't survive. But if, you, if you're crazy enough to smoke and you get the coronavirus, you can, you can get really seriously ill from this. Ross, just for those people out there who, who might have a cold and keep yep. thinking, have I got the coronavirus? What, yep. are the, what are the standout characteristics that someone should go off and get tested versus... You know, the fact was, I've been thinking there must be a whole lot of people out there who just got a normal cold who would be, you know, really worried that they might have the coronavirus. Are there standout symptoms that, that says to you, you've, you've got yourself checked? What are they? Okay. 
Well, let, let me tell you first that the, the classic, it's almost like a bimodal distribution of, of illness where you start off and you just feel like you've got a cold, a sore throat, runny nose, just a few minor aches and pains, you just don't feel well. And then you have that for a day or two and then you start to feel better and then you get really crook. And that's where you get the standout symptoms, which are fever, shortness of breath and a dry cough. But here's an interesting one. Uh, it's been shown that especially early on in the illness, about up to 90% of people also get an abnormality in taste or smell. So, and that mm. could be a symptom of another virus as well. Mm. But I'm saying that's a, a very, very almost specific symptom for the coronavirus that, that most people do get that weird taste in their mouth and they just can't smell things properly. Mm. So that's there, the question. But, but the, the three major symptoms are a fever above 38 degrees Celsius, which is with Boris Johnson, he's had this persistent fever that hasn't settled, uh, the shortness of breath and the cough. And if you're just short of breath by itself, there's probably another reason for that. Yeah. If you just got a cough by itself, there's probably another reason for it. But if you got yeah. all three together, you must be yeah. checked. I must admit, I, I, when I first you know, heard about this, the, the standout characteristic, it may well have been Tom Hanks, that, that, that he just felt so bad, he just had to go to bed. There was just no way yep. in the world he could soldier on and do the normal stuff. He said he had fever, headaches, and he just knew he's aching as well. He said, I had to go to bed. I guess yep. if, if a person's soldiering on like they normally do, probably they've just got a cold. Yeah, oh, oh yeah, look, uh, you have to have that. I mean, you mentioned the fatigue. I should have thrown that one in as well. Uh, evidently, people who get this get unbelievably tired mm. and and so you, you're sicker than you normally are with a standard cold but if people just have a bit of a sore throat and a runny nose have a guess what you've probably got a cold and and i say to all people in that situation a study out of finland from two or three years ago showed that if you started to feel you start to feel the symptoms of a cold and you take high doses of vitamin c so it's six to eight grams of vitamin c per day which is a huge amount a lot of people get diarrhea with that amount mm. But if you, if you start taking that when you feel a cold coming on, it can actually reduce the intensity and length of the cold, but it's not going to do anything for coronavirus. So, so I think it's a good thing to do anyhow if you feel, feel those symptoms coming on. But if you're not getting better, you must go and get checked and keep away from anyone, uh, especially your sicker, older friends and relatives. Ross, uh, as the curve sort of flattens, there's probably more discussion around whether it'll take a vaccine or a treatment or I mean, how do you sort of see this debate about, uh, you know, I think the Premier of New South Wales came out today and said that unless there was a vaccine, we might have uh, restrictions uh, right until that was in place uh, versus well, perhaps some sort of treatment. What do you what do you say to that? Yeah, well, look, I, I think the vaccine commercially is still about six to nine months away. They are they did start the trials of a vaccine in human trials in the US a couple of weeks ago with a thing called an RNA vaccine. The CSRI, CSIRO came out yesterday uh, day, or the day before yesterday with, with two, new, two new proposals for vaccines. That at the moment, they're testing in ferrets, but hasn't got to humans. So we're, we're looking at least six to nine months before we do have a vaccine for coronavirus. But as far as the treatments go, there's, there's been a couple of trials already of, of these drugs. There's a drug called Coletra, which is a combination antiretroviral agent, which has been shown to be very effective in AIDS because, as we all know, HIV is a virus, coronavirus is a virus. All these things are completely different to each other. Uh, Influenza is a virus. We already have antiviral agents for shingles, which is a, the chickenpox virus. But the, the problem with the trials of this Coletra that was done in... Um, 
in Wuhan, they found that it didn't do anything in, a, in about 200 patients they tested it on. But here was the problem. They waited till they got very ill. Now, if you, if you say, for example, get shingles and wait three or four days before you front up to the doctor with the pain and the rash, the, the antivirals don't do anything either. You've got to hit people early and hit them hard. So a trial started by the University of Queensland, uh, has uh, what they're going to do is use this hydroxychloroquine that that wonderful President Trump's trumpeting <laughs> on about, yeah. um, with early hydroxychloroquine and early Coletra, in, 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 not in people who just have the minor illness, but people that are manifesting signs that they're progressing on to the more severe, severe illness. And I'd like to make a comment about that in a second. And I think that's the way to do it. You hit them early, you hit them hard when, when it seems like they're getting crook. Now, the, the, the question is, why do 20% of people get sick? The, the 20% of people that get sick tend to be the older elderly people or people with an immune problem or health workers. And they're not getting just the effects of the virus. They're getting the effects of their immune system reacting to the virus. And they're getting a thing in their lungs called cytokine storm, where all these normal body chemicals are just putting a huge dose into the lungs and actually destroy lung tissue. They get a thing called honeycomb lung. And so it's, it's really important in those people that you get in early and treat them with this stuff. And they're the people that have to go under the ventilators. But the ventilators just support you until your, the inflammation settles down. So I'm saying treat early, treat hard until we have the vaccine. And the other interesting thing, there's a lot of people who, who are listening to this who probably heard that cardiac drugs may affect your risk for getting the coronavirus. And there's some very common cardiac drugs that are people on for blood pressure, for heart failure, and for other conditions called ACE inhibitors, and also another group of drugs called ARBs, which is slightly similar to the, to the ACE, uh, ACE inhibitors. And because what these drugs do is increase this receptor in your lung called the, um, the ACE2 receptor, and that allows the coronavirus to get easier into the body than, than if you're not on the drugs. But, but here's the thing. For the people who are really crook or on these drugs, they actually prevent this cytokine storm. So even though you might have a theoretically slightly higher risk of getting the coronavirus from, from an infected person, you probably have a lower risk of getting the severe complication of the coronavirus if you're on one of these drugs. So if anyone's listening and they've heard this thing about ACE inhibitors or ARBs, do not stop your cardiac drugs. Okay, now, you often complain when I start talking about the complications of the financial world. Well, look, yeah, that was going in one ear and out the other then, Ross, but for those people out there who are really intelligent, Ross is giving you a brilliant explanation of whatever you're talking about. Now, this is what I, this is what I really want the answer to. Oh, yeah, look, there was a pretty simple message at the end. Yeah, I know. Well, stop he's, taking he's, your cardiac yeah, drugs, right? He's brilliant. My, gra my greatest complaint is when Mr. Jones doesn't put you on at one minute to wait on, on 2GP because I'm listening for your, your words of wisdom every morning and I like to hear them at one minute to wait, not at 10 past that. Is that because that's when you go to the can or something, Ross, is it? <laughs> I don't ask that I question. Time, I time my shower around you talking on 2GP every morning. Okay, now look, this is the question I think a lot of our market-concerned people care about. All right, yep. We look like... And tell me if I'm right or wrong, but it looks like the curve is flattening in terms of infections. I think you gave us yep. some numbers earlier. 
But the big question for us then is, how long do you reckon the suppression period is going to be where we are going to be still locked up in our homes and not mm. able to go to, to, to football and cafes? How long do you reckon that should be, Ross? You're in well, charge now. You replace I, Brendan Murphy. You're the, the chief medical officer. How long do you reckon it should you're be? You're talking to uh, me as SCOMO, right? <laughs> <laughs> Peter Switzer as SCOMO. <laughs> this is music to my ears. I'm running the show. <laughs> now, if I was running the show, what I would do is once we, we, we are now seeing the curve flattening, if, if the numbers keep going down over the next two or three weeks, I would have the lockdown for another month from now or three three to four weeks. And by about June, I'd be allowing people to get back to relatively normal activity if the, if the curve stays flat. But I would have restaurants reopened in probably about a month because that, to me, it's one of life's necessities. But I, I'd certainly be having the restaurants reopened, but with rules around social distancing. So a restaurant that has, say, 50 um this table for 50 people, I'd make it now a table for 20 to 25 people. Mm. So at least let them dip their toe back into the water to see what's going to happen. Should and we all then, be wearing masks, Ross? Should we wear? Oh, look, I, I think I think if we're out in a out in a shopping centre, probably yes. Uh, certainly, I mean, I, I've seen ridiculous situations where people are driving along the car with a mask on. I mean, what? <laughs> Seriously, uh, it's just absolute nonsense. Yeah. I saw one thing the other day, and I won't say what nationality these people were because it might, might appear racist. But one thing the other day, where the the driver, the, the male driver, had a mask on, and the female driver didn't. I mean, <laughs> what, yeah. Uh, just nuts. So, but I, I think probably as a courtesy to your fellow traveller in the world, yeah. um, to, to wear a mask when you're out in an area where there, there is a fair bit of people, you can't be sure and they can't be sure that they don't have it. So, so by all means, wear a mask. Is there great science that they really do a lot? Probably not, except for the U-Butte things like the, nine, uh, the N95 mask or the P2 mask. But even then, <laughs> I'm not sure they stop the coronavirus. Ross Walker, your t- radio program, for those people who want to get a a weekly dose of Ross. It's Sunday nights on the Macquarie Network. So this run around the country. It's 2GB, 4BC, 2CC, 3AW, 6PR. Is there any, is there any other station? Yeah, 5AA in Adelaide as well. Yeah, 5AA in Adelaide. Yeah, the whole all bit. over the place. All right, mate, fantastic. And that's on between 7 and 9 on Sunday nights. Great to talk to you guys. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Ross. Oh, it's one that time of the program when we do another ad, Paul. And well, this one's really not an ad, Peter, because I reckon, I reckon if this was under the uh, – you had the broadcasters, the, the, the big media companies have rules about how many minutes yeah. they can broadcast of ads. So they give you the 12 or 13 minutes of ads and then give you 30 minutes of ads promoting their other programs. Right? Yeah. So you end up with a show about 10 minutes. Yeah. It's one of those. It's, 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 it's not an ad. But hang on. I, but also televisions and radio stations have to do some – dedication of ours to community they service. They do. So this is so our I, community service. Is, yeah, because unbeknownst to people listening to this wonderful podcast program, they might not know that despite the fact that my old mate Rupert Murdoch closed down the business channel and therefore my business program went missing, we've now recreated it on a YouTube channel and we call it Switzer TV Investing. And on Thursday night, it's Switzer TV Property. But the ones that people care about in terms of stocks – that's Switzer TV Investing on Monday nights on our YouTube channel. You would go to YouTube and Switzer Financial Group, and there it is, just waiting for yeah, you. all my old you guests. Just, just go to YouTube and just search for Switzer, and it'll come up. It's not, and then you can run it on your laptop, you can run it on your phone, on your TV set, on your TV set. You don't need any to download anything at all. You just, well, it's the just app. You need the app. No, don't you don't you? need the app. No, no, you don't need an app on TV. Yeah. 
You just need to have. It's got to be a YouTube. No, it, you have to have to go to you have to just go to YouTube, yeah. right? YouTube dot com, right? Huh. Search for Switzer, it'll come up. You just click. Yeah, but hang on, there are people listening to this. Either either you're stupid or I'm stupid. Well, I, I know. Yeah, yeah. I, I know the answer <laughs> to that question. If, but if if, if most, and you ain't if, like if, it. If most people turn on their TV, unless they've got Apple oh, their TV, TV. Okay. Yeah, or okay. some box, they haven't got the, the apps, and so you have to oh, download okay. the yeah, YouTube. Okay. Yeah. yeah, our smart producer. John Bragg. John's nodding in favour of me this time. But you don't need an app for your phone. No. And you don't need an app no, on your laptop, no, right? No. And it's just so, on your TV. Okay. Because see, some people would love – see, people over the age of 60 aren't as savvy as people like you, Paul, or John Bragg, and they would love to watch this YouTube TV program on their TV. And we're going to try and tell more and more people that you can actually do it. You might need to get your five-year-old grandson or your 17-year-old nephew to come over and show you how to do it. So, Because it's nice to watch all your YouTube and all your Google stuff on TV. Okay, I'll, I'll community we'll, service. Yeah, this I, is a community that, service. that's the community service part. I got that. Okay, yep. okay you did well there, Peter. Okay. And, you, and, you, and you came back from a Way out there, yeah. almost. Looking you look really, really, really precarious yeah. to uh, almost passing yeah. the muster. Yeah, 30 years of live radio and TV does teach you how to escape some very tricky situations. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, please go and watch the uh, YouTube uh, TV program, The Switzer TV Investing. You will love it. It is just like the old program, same guests, but just new information. So joining me now on The Switzer Show is Phil Riven. Now, Phil is the founder and director of Ibis World, arguably one of the, the best research companies, definitely in Australia. And I guess he put himself up there against the, uh, most research companies in the world. And, of course, the Riven Institute as well. Phil, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Peter. But before we start, just give us a snapshot history of Ibis World because that positions you as someone – who can make observations about Australian businesses, Australian consumers, and on the things that we do? Well, thank you, Peter. Yes, it, we actually started my company in 1971, but we weren't able to convert it into what we call an online business information company until 1988. So, in a sense, as an online, very intensive information company, it's about 30 years old or something like that, but we are still the only company anywhere in the world which will analyse every single industry in whatever economy we go to. So we analyse 509 industries here, anything from growing wheat to mowing lawns, and um, in America there's 720 industries, we do all of those, we do them all in China, Germany, England, Canada, New Zealand, Indonesia. We're now, interesting enough, uh, the world's largest online marketing and business information company, and we got a very nice letter also from the White House uh, only about a week and a half ago because they were they're one of our biggest clients in America, but they wrote a very nice letter saying we made life very easy for them because we're able to tell them which of the 720 industries in America we're going to get into terrible trouble as a result of the coronavirus. Mm. And they also wanted to know where on earth we were going to get some uh, enough ventilators, and we were able to point them exactly to where they could get them and get them made. And uh, we got a very nice letter from that. But we have probably um, got about 2,000 clients in Australia, Peter, and 
all virtually all the banks and chartered accountants and law firms and mm. corporates, and um, we just help them make you know better forward plans, I think, than they otherwise might do. So uh, it's been a very successful company, and I don't take all the credit for that at all, only mm. for starting it. Now, Phil, um, obviously no one can talk to anyone nowadays without mentioning the word coronavirus or COVID-19, and your, your organisation, uh, I presume it's it's more the Riven Institute is making the, the point that lots of things will change as a consequence. Lifestyles, in particular, travel costs, is, you know, in, in the press release that I'm looking at here. Why don't you just talk around that? I'm sure my colleague Paul Ricard will want to rip in with a few questions as well. Right. Well, now, the, the thing about travel to work is that we currently spend um, around about $250 a week per family on what we call both mobility in the form of transport and communications. And um, in a sense, what's happening as a result of, of COVID-19 is that anybody who's still got a job, um, and a lot don't have, because if you're in a restaurant or whatever, you don't have a job left at the moment, you might be paid to, to stay home, but you haven't got a job. And uh, they're starting to find those that do have a job that they can work from home, of course, and that includes the whole 120 people we've got here in Melbourne or the 180 people we've got in New York. They can work from home. And what I think they're going to find, Peter, is that it's first of all going to save time, even after COVID-19's gone, not to have to travel to work because for the average person, you're probably looking at an hour and a half a day minimum unless you just ride to work or walk to work close by. And um, so you're saving not only the time to get your life work balanced much better, but you're saving also a lot of spending on the travel costs as well. So whilst I don't think everybody's really capable of working by themselves effectively, I think it's fair to say that most people are very good at spending at least part of their working week working at home, maybe two days a week, three days a week. And um, what I think is going to happen, Peter, is that instead of there being 20% of the 13 million workers working from home at the present time, it's going to rise to 30% fairly quickly uh, during the rest of this decade. In other words, people are going to either fully or partly start working from home and that's going to change businesses as well as the families because do we need as many office mm-hmm. offices in the city, for example, um, uh, or offices anywhere? You know, it might be attached to a warehouse, might be anywhere. Um, there has to be a thumping big question mark over whether businesses need to commit to the cost of actually having an office or at least having an office as big as they've got. Mm. And they're most of them probably lease it these days, but even if you only had to lease something a third of the size, you're going to make a yeah, lot of money. Right. You know, and... Um, so I think it's a it's a win win situation. Uh, there's no doubt that people work most people work better gregariously, but even I think there, Peter, that looking at the way things like Zoom and Skype and other things are going, um, it's only going to get better and better. And I think we're going to get very quickly over the next five ten years to where you can have two or three or four or five screens on your desk if you want to, not just have a split screen with different faces on it. You do that already, but. I think with all the sort of almost 3D improvements, you're going to feel like you're at the office anyway, but you're at home, you know, and you've, you've got that same gregarious feel, and you can still ask a question and say, oh, Jack, you know, look, what was that blah, 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 and he says, oh, it was so-and-so. 
you know, so you'll still get that sort of gregarious help as well as the feeling of companionability. And I think that companionship, which is very important. So I think we're in for a very positive, uh, very good change that helps both the workers but also makes the businesses more efficient as well. So that's going to also, um, Phil, have some impact on particular industries and particular companies on the stock market. And uh, I agree with you. One of the points why I've been warning people not to rush back into things like airlines because I think that uh, a lot of companies are suddenly realising they don't need to do the Sydney to Melbourne commute to have a meeting. You know, you can actually do work quite effectively some of these meetings by Zoom. So it's going to be a lot. Mm-hmm. It could have some long-term impacts on, on airlines. But... So who who are the winners though? Because whenever you get a sort of a change in the way people um, behave or work or whatever it is, there's always industries that win, and there are some that lose. So mm. in your scenario, where a lot more of us are potentially spending, you know, if not permanently, maybe one or two days a week at home, who are who are what are the winning industries going to be in that environment? Well, it's interesting, Paul, because in one way you need to look at the workforce by the industries they're in. And the other way is look at that same 13 million people by the occupation they've mm-hmm. got. So, for example, you know, you've got mining and agricultural industries. You might say, well, they're going to have to have physical input so they can't work from home until we remember just how many people work in an office yeah. of either a mining or agricultural company, you know, and the same with you know, with so many other businesses. So that uh, it's fairly true that you'll get less people in mining and manufacturing and, and, and agriculture. But mind you, there's not that many people working in those industries anyway. Uh, so, um, but even then, there will be some because of the occupation they've got, which is basically an office type job. And when you look at it, therefore, by the type of work they do rather than the industry, um, you can find that, um, uh, you know, probably as much as um, 60 or 70% of the occupations lend themselves to either part or full time working from home if you want to. Uh, and that's a hell of a, a big change from the twenty percent or thirty percent. Sorry, the twenty percent we've got now. So um, I, I think it's uh, it, it is now. For example, if I can give another example, Paul. But, um, for example, what we do in our American business is when it comes to looking at say legal services or lawyers, we have to do two reports over there on lawyers these days because there is what you call the normal law firms where they look after the criminal things or property or whatever it might be. And then there are lawyers that are working with artificial intelligence online. In other words, you don't leave your home or your office. You just dial in. And what we find is that the online legal services are growing at something like twice or three times as fast as the the face-to-face type uh, services. And what's even more interesting is that they're much more accurate with their advice. In other words, the online with artificial intelligence is giving more accurate answers than than, than your, your super professional um, you know legal partner. So mm. um, that's an example where why do you have to have then a big legal practice in the city, you know, a couple of thousand people, when you can run that online and um, let alone all your accounting people and your other office people and whatever. And I mean, my own company here, just our Melbourne office, there's not a soul here. There's only 120. They're all working from home. Mm. They just take their PC with them and away they go. So do you think in the future when you're renegotiating your, your lease, you'll be looking for a lot less workstations and a much cheaper rent? Well, that's interesting. Um, we think the organisational culture is is pretty important in our business, particularly being analysts. Um, 
And I think we would probably not go full bore into the work from home. Um, we, we did try that once where we had about a, a quarter of our analysts working from home, but we then reversed that, fun enough, because we found that uh, in important business like ours where you've got to do accurate forecasting and take a lot of things into account, almost rubbing shoulders in an office made you a better analyst than working from home. Mm. But I think what we're finding is that um, you can do a bit of both, really. And, of course, obviously this month and maybe for a few more months, we're going to do it all from home because we aren't allowed to congregate in in, in, in one space. So, mm. yes, it's... Um, and I think that just raises the question of those sort of people that are good at working by themselves and those that are not, um, which I mentioned a bit earlier. Yeah. Now, Phil, Phil, you, you, you are known as a economic futurist. And <laughs> I love that. Right. Speaking agencies yeah. will, will come up with any, any sort of tag. But the bottom line is I've often come to you for, for questions around the future. How long do you reckon we're going to be locked up in our homes how long before you reckon we'll be approaching some kind of normalcy with work, entertainment, football? Because you're you're a Melbourne, like you you must be hanging out to watch football. <laughs> yes, it's, it's probably got more attendance than churches these days. I think as they say, it's its own religion. But I think to answer that question, I think that um, it's it's going to take longer than most people would like. Um, because there's going to be so much disruption to business as a result of what we're going through. For example, we've got 2.4 million, almost 2.5 million businesses in Australia, and normally 300,000 of those shuts up each year, or roughly one in eight, and they're replaced by another one in eight new businesses of some description, not always the same ones. Now, this year we'll probably lose an extra 100,000 on top of that because of all this disruption from covid uh, now, that's going to make people very nervous and the memories are going to live not as bad as a depression, of course, because that in the 30s went on for about four or five years, but even four or five months these days, is, is, it seems to be a lifetime to people who haven't kept on, gone through as much hardship or pain. I mean, we haven't even had a recession since 1991, 92s so are half the workforce has never even experienced a recession. So we, we're not nearly as blooded or toughened up as we used to be. Now, the premiers are starting to say still they've got July as being the time when they hope to get everybody back to work. Now, if that's the case, then we'll have gone through April, May, June and July. That will have gone through a third of the year and that will have removed 15% of the economy divided by three. We'll have lost 5% of the GDP for a start, which throws us straight into recession. So there's no question we finish this year by looks of it in a recession, mm. no matter how, if we go through to July. If we get pulled up, you know, two weeks after Easter, that would be very, very different. Um, and I think that governments are now starting to look at the state and federal level to say, can we safely, in two or three or four weeks' time, um, you know, start to change the rules and get people back to work? Um, and I'd be barracking for that left, right and centre. Um because my fear, Peter, is that the longer you leave it, the harder it is to get people back to the job they originally had. Even China, where they've got back to work, uh, for example, of all the restaurants they've got, they're only running at less than a fifth of the capacity because nobody has got, they've got out of the habit already of even going out of the house to go and have mm. a meal. Mm. So, you know, even getting back to old habits is going to take one hell of a long time. And people are going to be scared to spend money because they think, God, we, we virtually went broke almost the way we were. 
you know, the mortgages, if it hadn't been for the bank deciding they'd stretch the mortgage period out, we'd have been lost our house. So there's going to be a lot of nervous nillies around, not you know, not going to spend too much money. So it means that getting back to normal, if that's a good expression, yeah. uh, I think it's, it's probably going to take 18 months to two years before we can safely say, whoa, thank God, that's behind us now. In other words, we not, might not be worried by deaths from COVID and things like that. I think much beyond about uh, August, September this year, I would have thought, you know, that will have almost started to fade away. But I think the aftermath damage um, resulting from this, uh, you know, could mean we're going to be well late into 2021 before we can say, full, you know, back to normal. And that was Phil Riven of Ibis World and the Riven Institute. Our next guest, uh, Paul, is Grant Arnott, who's the MD of Power Retail. We talked to him a couple of weeks ago when they brought out this um, press release on the best online brands. Thanks for joining us, Grant. Thanks, guys. So just in a nutshell, what is Power Retail? So Power Retail is an e-commerce intelligence resource for uh, online retail professionals. And so we've been around since 2010 uh, and we're very focused on providing data, insights, news, information for the online retail industry, so the businesses who are, who are making um, digital retail happen. Okay. Now, you also have put out the top 100 online retailers. Yeah, that's right. So we've, uh, since 2013, we've published an annual list of Australia's top 100 online retailers, and it's becoming a, uh, a mainstay of the industry that uh, everyone looks forward to every year. We celebrate it with a big event at the start of the year in February uh, called the All-Star Bash, and uh, we keep putting more and more into it each year to make sure the list is um, solid, and it's actually extended now beyond 100 to um, to we've got 500 retailers that we're, we're focused on on the online component. Yeah, it's just, just a real, real lot of growth there. Now, but I've got a list here of top eight, and it starts off with Bunnings, Target, Big W, The Iconic, Catch, Kmart, Chemist Warehouse, and Dan Murphy's. Are they online? We know that they're bricks and mortar businesses, but do they do they figure in the, the top 100 online retailers? Yeah, um, some of them do. I mean, some of the ones that you mentioned there, Catch, The Iconic, are, are online-owned mm. retailers with substantial volumes. But, uh, yeah, certainly the bricks-and-mortar retailers, I think, since we've been involved, uh, we've seen this evolution where, which is similar to other markets around the world, where uh, the pure-play online retailers sort of kicked off online shopping yeah. and um, in, in a lot of other markets as well and led the way with innovation, led the way with logistics. Uh, even Amazon in the US did that initially. And then uh, the bricks-and-mortar retailers really saw what was happening and uh, obviously used their, their brand presence, their um, scale to uh, generate you know, substantial uh, online offerings. Mm. Uh, and so the stores are in there because they're able to, A, a they've got a, a substantial online following and invested heavily uh, to you know improve that, that online shopping experience as well as the omni-channel shopping experience. But they're also able to leverage their store networks as fulfillment centers or click and collect centers as well. So um, it, there's, there's no denying that the bricks and mortar retailers have uh, certainly woken up to the, the, the size of the online opportunity in Australia and have invested accordingly and, and thus they represent a significant part of the top of the list. I noticed the other day, Grant, that both uh, Woolworths and Coles published in their um, 
half yearly sales reports, some data around online, and Coles, I think it's now four and a half, sorry, Woolworths, four and a half percent of their uh, uh, groceries are purchased online, and Coles, it's four percent, but both numbers growing reasonably strongly. Sort of by volume, where would they rate in sort of the top hundred of in terms of online retailers? Yeah, well, they're they're one and two on our list. So Woolworths was crowned the, the top online retailer of the year, and and Coles number two. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the shift in Australian consumer spending towards online for the convenience, but also the investment both those businesses have made. You know, they're going head to head against each other, but also against the overall um, online shopping market. So they're determined to um, uh, keep investing, in, and it's showing in, in those numbers. And um, that that online growth is representative of a significant part of the overall growth for, for both of those businesses. And, and not would they the, not just the supermarkets, but you know across the board of, of the bricks and mortar businesses? And are they cycles. rated as being sort of pretty good sites, sort of in a comparative sense internationally, in terms of what Australian shoppers can get access to? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So they're, they're certainly um, some of the leaders in Australia, particularly around the use of um, the mobile app and the convenience of, of shopping with the mobile app, like using using both of the apps. is, is uh, and, and these are the things that we look at, not just the, the desktop side experience, but we look at you know, the overall um, digital shopping experience, which now um, you know, a significant portion of that is happening on mobile devices and, and both businesses have invested a lot in, in mobile, but we also look at the, the logistics, the, um, the, uh, the click and collect, uh, the customer service, the um, delivery standards and um, how flexible they are, how convenient they are. So all of those things come into play in terms of how we're ranking the retailers as well as their, their overall size, traffic volume, etc. Yeah, Grant, what is the number one pure online well, website in Australia? Yeah, this year it was. It is the Iconic, so mm. congratulations to the Iconic. Um, and look, that's um, that's down to, again, you know, excellent logistics, um, big – part of it was customer feedback that we take into account and things like um, net promoter scores as well. So a very highly rated um, business amongst customers, the, the Iconic. Yeah. Um, but, you know, look, the, the question mark around the Iconic too sometimes is, okay, well, uh, how are they doing overall as a business? It's one thing to offer exceptional customer service, but can you turn that into a, uh, you know, a profitable enterprise? Mm. And, and that's um, yet to be seen from, uh, from the Iconic and, and particularly in, in that fashion area where, it's really difficult. You've got a lot of returns uh, to manage. You've got a lot of, you know, logistic challenges in, in fashion, and, and a lot of competition and a lot of discounting. So, uh, but the iconic certainly, um, you know, they're they're no flash in the pan. They've been around a long time now. Uh, built a, a big business, a big following, hugely popular with millennials, and yeah. so got got the gong. Okay, and what about Kogan? How's it performed? Uh, yeah, Kogan's always one of the ones that's up there on our list, um, and yeah, certainly one of the, the top pure play online retailers in Australia. Great, great success story in terms of a, a listed business. Um, you know, it's had its ups and downs, but I think you look at the journey of Kogan as a as a listed online only retailer, and it's certainly one of the big success stories in Australia. Made some some shareholders some some good money, which uh, is contrary, honestly, to, to some of the other. Um, uh, lesser lights in terms of 
businesses have gone to the ASX. Um, that's online retail businesses. But, yep. uh, yeah, Kogan, I think, had a, had a stumble at the start, but has certainly been a, a, a great performer over the last 12 to 18 months. All right, Grant, thanks for joining us. No worries. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Grant Arnott from Power Retail. Well, Paul, that's the show for today. Um, Pauline's always you know, interesting and entertaining, but I've got to say, the coronavirus, that is on the lips and the brains of everybody. I think Ross has actually allayed some of my fears. I, I think Ross allayed some of the fears. And certainly, uh, you know, I mean, Pauline was, I think, a little betterish about her assessment of uh, how long we might be in lockdown, yeah. but uh, I don't think Ross was uh, a lot more optimistic. And mm. I, I'm probably feeling a bit more optimistic too, Peter, that... Uh, you know, that we're going to be uh, let out. Certainly there's going to be some easing restrictions within, uh, I think, within two to three weeks. Yeah, let's, let's hope Ross Walker and the National Rugby League are on the money and life returns more to normal in June.